The scripture reading today is Genesis 17, 1 through 8, which you can find on page 14 of the Pew Bible. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Covenant of Circumcision. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for all the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Genesis 17. We'll be looking at this passage together this morning. A delight to be able to worship the God with uh, uh, the music we've had this morning. Uh, it is a it is a joy. There's so much to be thankful for uh, during the Christmas season. As much as we're told to be of good cheer. Uh, however, Christmas can be a time of relatively mixed emotions for some of us. Some of us look forward to gathering with friends and family, and some of us, to be honest, kind of don't look as much forward to that, some of the baggage it brings up. And, and then some of us, uh, you know, dread the idea of, of working again on a Christmas holiday or, or being alone. Uh, for some, it's the excitement of our first holiday as a couple or, or with a new child. Uh, for others, it's the sorrow of the first holiday without mom or dad or a son or a daughter. Many of us bounce back and forth between the joy of giving a gift and the pain of paying for those gifts. Um, you know, for the Leverings, we, we're looking forward to being able to see family in Nebraska this Christmas. But even before we get there, it's tempered by the knowledge that we're going to have to say goodbye so shortly after arriving. There's mixed emotions with the holidays. And for as much joy and anticipation as fills this season, there is underneath it a reminder that not all is as it should be in this world. In fact, the reason that Advent is a time of anticipation, we talk about that a lot, a time of anticipation, the reason is because we're looking for something to change. We're looking for something 
new to happen, something painful to go away, something to come that will hopefully fill us with the the happiness or the significance that we're, we're so often looking for, but that feels so often absent from our lives. We sing at Christmas of joy and peace in God's plan. But despite the singing and despite the stories we tell, there is a significant temptation to doubt the goodness of God's plan or to doubt his ability to pull it off. We doubt his goodness because there is so much that doesn't seem right in the world. There's so many bad things. And we doubt his ability because despite his promises, nothing seems to change. And yet Christmas is the hope of a world made right again. More specifically, Christmas is God's answer to that hope. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, stepping into his own creation in order to rescue a people for himself and establish his reign, his kingdom and rule on earth as it is in heaven. He has come to take everything that is wrong with life, everything that's wrong in this world, all that is broken, all that is rebellious against his kingdom, every reminder that this world is not as it should be, Christ has come to bring it all back under his rightful rule to make things right once again. The book that we've been studying uh, through Uh, Together, the Gospel of Matthew has been making this point over and over and over again. Almost every single passage in some way points us to Christ coming to reign as King. But for this Advent season, we're taking our lead from a parable that we looked at last week in Matthew 13. And we're going to look at some of the Old Testament promises of God's coming King through the New Testament lens of Jesus. So in Matthew 13:52 it says, therefore, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, therefore every scribe or teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And as we looked at these this verse last week, we talked about how the scribes of the Pharisees, so some of the religious leaders in Jesus's day, they were able to bring out of the treasury only what was old, only the law and the prophets. Jesus wants his followers to bring out what is new and old. So the Old Testament promises as they're fulfilled in the New Testament work of Christ. And that, so that's our goal for the next few weeks to, to see how the promises of God's coming King in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the new work that Jesus is doing. And this morning we're going all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, where we find the first explicit promise of a King who would come and rise up among God's people in Genesis 17, 1 through 8. And while we don't learn much about that king in these verses, uh, who he is, what he'll be like, when he'll come, and so on, we learn quite a bit about why God will someday raise up a king. And it has everything to do with the longing in our hearts for a world made right. What we see in Genesis 17 is that despite the brokenness, despite 
the rebellion that fills this world. God intends to reclaim his royal vision for creation. And he's going to do it by fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants. So let's look at this passage. Let's pray together as we look at it. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering and opening your word. And Lord, we long to hear from you this morning. May your spirit be at work in our hearts, giving us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts eager to be changed by the truth of your gospel. May our hearts, uh, may we be changed and may our lives bring honor to you as we're conformed to your son's image. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you spent any time in the book of Genesis in these early chapters, uh, you'll be reminded here that, that Genesis 17 is part of a much larger story of a man named Abraham, or Abram as he's called at the beginning of our passage, a man whom God called to leave his country and his people and his father's household and to go to a land that God would show him because God had planned to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless him. And he promised to, to make his name great and through this man to bless not just his descendants, but every nation upon the earth. And we read the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 25. As we, as we look at it, it's really a story with a lot of ups and downs in it. Uh, as Abraham follows God and waits for God to fulfill his promises. Because there are two big problems in the story of Abraham. First, the land that God promised him is currently occupied by somebody else. So they're not able to go there and, and, and take up residency right away. But second, and more central to our passage this morning, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. She cannot have children. And even if she could, she's past her childbearing years, which makes it pretty hard, pretty difficult to become a great nation uh, with descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore if you can't even get started with number one. Abraham often finds himself through this story tempted to doubt the goodness of God's plan or his ability to pull it off. In Genesis 15, he worries and and goes to God worrying that that a member of his household is going to receive the inheritance because he has no son to pass it on to despite what God has already promised him. In chapter 16, he takes matters into his own hands and tries to make good on God's promise for him. He, He follows Sarah's counsel and has a son with her servant Hagar, Ishmael. Doesn't work. Uh, the son of promise is going to come from Sarah. But he's tempted at, at, at different turns to doubt the goodness of God's plan. Is he really going to you know, pull this off and his ability to do it? And for all the differences uh, in our culture and all the thousands of years that separate us from Abraham, it's interesting to see how common that temptation is to doubt the goodness of God and his faithfulness to his promises. But God wants us to know that he will be faithful to his promise. He wants us to trust him to work it out in his own time, in his own way. He wants Abraham 
to trust him to do that. And so in our passage, to bolster Abraham's trust, he makes a covenant with him, a special deal, a sacred arrangement between God and Abraham and his descendants. And we see him do this first in chapter 15 and then again in chapter 17. And it's the second of these covenants that we have in our passage this morning in Genesis 17. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. When Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm or make my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase or multiply your numbers. God is making a special sacred arrangement with Abraham. But notice how the chapter begins, even by reminding us of Abraham's problem. That little line, when Abraham was 99 years old. You know, the last chapter, when, when he kind of tried to take matters into his own hands and, and have a son through uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar, that chapter ended telling us he was 86 years old. You know, fast forward now, he's 99 and he still has no son. It's not looking good. In fact, it's pretty impossible. But notice next how God introduces himself in this passage, just when we're tempted to despair. He said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. He is the God who's powerful enough to do the impossible. I am God Almighty, all-powerful. And God says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. He gives Abraham an instruction. So the covenant that God is making in this chapter is a little bit different than the one he made in chapter 15. In that chapter, God made a one-sided covenant. He promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, and he asked nothing in return of Abraham. Here in 17, this covenant includes not only promises of what God will do, but also stipulations for Abraham. He's called to walk in obedience and in integrity of relationship with God. And if we keep reading beyond our verses this morning, we see that he and his family are also supposed to bear the mark of the covenant, circumcision. So there's instructions Abraham needs to follow in this covenant. But what is the whole business about? What is God doing here with Abraham? Well, if we look at our, at our passage, we see two key ideas that are emphasized over and over again in these verses. First is God's desire to make a covenant with Abraham. And second is his plan to multiply Abraham and make him the father of many nations. We see that in verse 2, where God tells us the goal of of calling Abraham to walk in obedience. It's that one, I may make my covenant between me and you, and two, I will that I may multiply you greatly. So we see it in that introduction. We see it in, again in verse 4 as he introduces the covenant itself. As for me, one, this is my covenant with you. Two, you will be a father of many nations. Covenant multiplying. And then each of those two elements is expanded on 
as God continues. In verses 5 through 6, he expands on his plan to multiply Abraham greatly. He says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And then 7 through 8 expand on his plan to make a covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Two main points throughout these verses. God is making a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. A holy, sacred arrangement. And the heart of that covenant is his plan to multiply Abraham and make him into a great nation. To make him a father of a multitude of nations. Countless descendants. Not just biologically, but spiritually as well. So even nations that don't come from the genealogical line of Abraham are going to be blessed by God through their association with Abraham. Which means his original name, Abram, is no longer going to suit. Abraham, or Abram meant something like exalted father. So God gives him a new name, meaning father, or it sounds like the Hebrew for a father of a multitude, father of many nations. And all of this God is going to do for Abraham if he will keep this covenant and walk in faithfulness and obedience to God, which is something, as we keep reading, that we see him do by God's grace. We see it tested ultimately when God calls him to sacrifice his firstborn son, a test to see, are you really going to trust me or not? And God, of course, didn't want him to do that, but he saw that, yes, Abraham is really going to trust God. He's going to trust God to keep his promises, even if it doesn't make sense. God's covenant with Abraham is one of the pillars of the whole history of his people Israel. And really one of the pillars of the entire story of the Bible. The whole story of God's work of salvation throughout history. But what's at stake in this covenant is not only God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants, but also his plan for the entire creation. And we see that in the language of the covenant itself. So look again at chapter 17. And notice the language that God uses when he explains his plan to Abraham. Verse 1 again. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And in verse 6 he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That language of fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard that before in the scriptures? Go back to the beginning. to Genesis 1.28 and God's vision for all humanity in creation. He says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's at stake in the promise to Abraham is nothing less than the restoration of God's original plan from the beginning. The reassertion of God's rightful rule over all the earth. The world made right again. When God is introduced to us in those opening pages of Scripture in Genesis 1, He's introduced to us not just as a creator, but as a king. Now, the word doesn't show up there, but the idea is all over the place. Because he's the one who makes everything, he's the one who owns it all. And since he owns it, he has the unique right to rule over it. He's the one who has the power to accomplish his plan just by saying the word. He's the one who has the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. He is the one who sees what is good throughout the creation account. And also who has the authority to hold to account any who refuse to submit to that plan. He is not just creator, he is also king. And central to his royal plan for his creation is his vision for humanity. Unlike every other creature that he makes, each of which is made according to its own kind, God makes humans in his image and after his likeness. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what in the world it means to be made in the image of God. But I think we can summarize it with three words. It means relationship. It means reflection. And it means representation. Relationship, reflection, and representation. In Genesis 5, We read, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. That sounds an awful lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? You keep reading. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and named him Seth. So we see here that to be in someone's image is first and foremost about relationship, specifically a parent-child relationship. We were made to be God's children, his sons and daughters. And as his children, we're meant to look like him, to reflect him. I'm told probably weekly that my children look an awful lot like me, Uh and, you know, you hold them up and, and it's, it's kind of true. They, they look like me. You can tell that we're related because they reflect my image. And so in the same way, we are to look like God, not physically, but in terms of our character and how we live our lives. And as children who reflect the character of our king, we also have the job of representing him, of being royal representatives, vice regents, called in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with his image and to bring it under his rightful rule on his behalf. This was God's original vision for humanity. All of creation under his rule, enjoying his blessing to the praise of his glory. It's what's missing in so much of life today. 
And the reason is not because God's plan wasn't good or he doesn't have the ability to pull it off. The reason is that we've rebelled against his plan. We've rebelled against his rule. And that's what happened in Genesis 3, what we often refer to as the fall. That's when Adam and Eve and and all humanity in them rejected God as king and sought to rule the world basically for themselves. In fact, if, if you need a handy definition for what the Bible means by the word sin, this would be it. Rejecting God as king. Rejecting God's rule as king. Rebellion against him. It's saying to him, basically, I don't need you. I'm not going to obey you. I can and I will do this on my own, my way. To the extent that your way lines up with my way, that's all good and fine. But the minute they diverge, I rule. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the claim. That's sin. That is a heart of sin. And it makes a mess. It makes a mess of our lives and our relationships, both the sin that we commit and the sins committed against us. It makes a mess of the world around us. And worst of all, it makes a mess of the relationship that we have with God. It separates us from him. Instead of enjoying his blessing under his rule, we throw off his rule and we bring upon ourselves his curse. The underlying problem in this world is not God's goodness or ability, but it's our rebellion against his rule. And so whatever he does to bless us, to do good to us, to have favor and kindness on us, he does it out of his sheer grace. He does it not because we've earned anything, not because we're good enough. He does it out of his grace. And we can trust him to do that in his time and in his way. He is committed to his royal vision for creation. He's not going to let what he created for a purpose go to waste. He's going to fill the earth with his glorious reputation and he's going to do so through a people in his image related to him as his children, reflecting his glory and representing his rule. He will make all things right again. He will. And he reaffirms that commitment in his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He picks up the promises and plan of creation and he passes them on forward through Abraham and his descendants. So how will God fulfill this covenant to Abraham? Coming back now to chapter 17. What's he going to do to make good on those promises? Well, that brings us to what appears at first to be kind of a throwaway line in verse 6. What feels kind of maybe just, you know, an example of how extravagant Abraham's legacy is going to be one day. This little line that says, kings shall come from you. It's a subtle statement, easily missed. But what's interesting is that the rest of the book of Genesis, and really the rest of the Bible, but the rest of Genesis in particular picks up on that little phrase as a critical component of how God's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and thus his plan for creation. God will raise up a king. He's going to raise up a king. 
We see this same phrase reiterated in God's promise to Sarah in verses 15 and 16. As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be a mother of nations, the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Not only are are kings going to come from Abraham, they're going to come from his wife, Sarah. And then in Genesis 21, when God finally answers what he promised clear back in chapter 12, and he gives them a son, Isaac. And then Isaac himself has a son, Jacob. Listen to what God says to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. There's that word again. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. And then finally, as you keep reading through Genesis and you get to the last chapters of the book, this promise of a king comes to rest on Jacob's son, Judah, where it begins to take on a little bit fuller shape. Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That's interesting. Not only is this coming king going to rule over Israel, he's going to receive the obedience of all nations. We're not just looking for kings to come from Abraham. We're looking for a specific king who will rule the entire earth. So much of the Old Testament story is caught up with the question of, okay, Who is this king? When's he going to come? What's he going to be like? And and you read through that story with this longing in your heart. Who is this offspring of Abraham? This royal seed through whom all nations are going to be blessed. This one who's going to reclaim God's rule over his creation and make right everything that's messed up in this world. We're going to follow the development of that story over the next couple of weeks, looking at a a few other key passages. But in case there's any doubt about the answer to that question, take a look at how the New Testament opens and closes, keeping in mind these Old Testament promises. Matthew 1.1, the very first verse of the New Testament, begins, a record of the genealogy of, Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Of all the ways you can introduce somebody, why say he's the son of Abraham? Here is our king. And then listen to Revelation 5, John's vision of God in heaven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The scepter has come to Judah. What God promised in Genesis 49, John watches unfold as one who has the unique authority to unlock God's entire plan of salvation and judgment is there, able because he has triumphed. But who is this lion of the tribe of Judah? You keep reading in verse 6. Then I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So the seed of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the lamb who was slain. It was through Jesus' death on the cross for our sin that he has conquered and established God's kingdom. And so all heaven sings in verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals... Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. What God intended from the beginning, what he promised to do through Abraham and his descendants, He has accomplished through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. And he will be faithful to bring that plan to completion in the end. We can trust him to do it in his own time, in his own way, even when we're tempted to doubt. He's the one who's making all things new, the world made right. And it's in him and only through faith in him that we are able to be made right with God. We are able to become what we were intended to be in the first place, children of God, related to Him, reflecting His glory, representing His rule, a kingdom and priests to our God forever to His glory. Let's pray. Lord, how incredible it is to stop and realize that the stories we tell and the songs we sing at Christmas did not come out of the blue. They weren't made up out of thin air. They are the fulfillment of a long and old story that you've been telling since the creation of the world and that you were faithful to accomplish through sending your Son. Lord, we ask for his kingdom to come. We ask that you would exert your rule over our hearts and our lives, that we would know you as Savior and King, that our our lives would be surrendered to you, that we would do your will, that we would enjoy your blessing, that we would reflect your image. Lord, we want this world to be made right. We long for it. And so we pray that you would Establish your reign 
increasingly, day by day in this place, that you would send your Son to return and to finish the work, to bring in the glory of your new creation, the world finally and fully made right again. Lord, we know you will be faithful to Jesus' second advent because we've seen your faithfulness in sending him with the first. So God, do your work. Make this world your own again. Establish your kingdom and do it in our hearts right now. We ask it in Jesus' name.